Welcome to the Policy Leadership Series podcast from Resources for the Future. Leading global decision makers speak to RFF President and CEO Richard Newell about big environmental and energy policy issues. In this episode, Richard speaks to CEO of BP, Bernard Looney. Mr. Looney took on the role of CEO about a year ago, but has spent most of his career at BP, starting out as a drilling engineer and most recently leading BP's upstream business of global oil and gas exploration and production. Their conversation took place on March 11th. Bernard, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us uh, for this Policy Leadership Series event. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. It's uh, fantastic to be with you. I'd like to start, Bernard, with uh, the story of your career and experiences at BP. Um, you've spent your entire career at BP, three decades, working in many different roles before coming CEO. Um, I know you started as a drilling engineer, working in places like the North Sea of Vietnam uh, and the Gulf of Mexico. How have those experiences ultimately led you to where you're at now? Um, and how did your background in engineering uh, influence your perspective and decision-making as the top leader of a global energy company? Well, um, Richard, thanks, uh, as I say, for having me on. It's uh, it's fantastic to be with you. And, uh, and hello to everyone who's uh, out there listening. Um, yeah, I grew up in uh, in the west of Ireland and uh, on a small farm, actually, and studied uh, engineering in, uh, in university in Dublin. And, and as you said, joined BP, um, I guess, 30 years ago now um, and have been with them around the world. And one of the things that you get the opportunity to experience when you do that is the emphasis that people in different parts of the world place on energy and something that we take for granted uh, maybe in uh, America and in uh, the UK uh, is um, something that people desperately um, rely on and vie for in parts of the world. I lived in Vietnam in the early 90s, uh, for example, in Da Nang of all places. So I think it does in... um, still in you a sense of how fortunate we are in the West and how energy is the lifeblood uh, to progress. But coming into the job, you know, I think it was clear to me, Richard, that we had to change um, as a company and we had to to change for three reasons, uh, none of which are a surprise to you, I think, or your viewers. Uh, The first is that there is a carbon budget. It is finite uh, and it is running out. Uh, second, society, um, and of course our employees are are part of society. They want uh, us to change, and quite frankly, they they need us to change. They want different things from their energy. And to be successful, as we were talking about earlier, in the long run, you simply can't go against uh, the grain of what society wants. And thirdly, um, you know, I believe it's an enormous business opportunity. The the entire uh, energy system of the world, I think, will be replumbed and rewired. That will take trillions of dollars uh, of investment. And it's a complex problem. And in fact, we love complexity and it sort of plays to our strengths. So on the one hand, I guess we feel we, we have got to change because if you don't, you get left behind by society and by technology. And on the other hand, Richard, we want to change. Uh, not just because it's the right thing uh, to do, but it's, it's also a massive business opportunity for us. I hope that gives you a sense of, of how we came at this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Bernard, uh, you know, let's dive in a little bit. I know that uh, you, know, you uh, started as CEO, had some major announcements in uh, maybe a week ago, uh, a year ago. And many pivotal things have happened. Then, uh, since then, you know that must have been a, a pivotal point for the company. And then, of course, COVID nineteen brought 
the global uh, economy to a halt. You know, these are unprecedented circumstances. Uh, they've demanded unprecedented and unanticipated shifts in employment uh, and strategies, uh, shifts in how you think about uh, who you are as a company and what your customers want. You know, we'll, we'll delve into some of the detailed strategies in a minute, but, you know, one year out, uh, what is this process of reinvention looking like? And, you know, what priorities have you established as you build BP of today and into the future? Well, I think if we look back on on the year, and um, um, uh, I live in in London now, and as the British would say, it certainly has been an interesting year, and in the British sense of the word, but it's been an incredibly challenging uh, year to say the very minimum for so many people in so many parts of the world. But amongst all those challenges, and I'm sure you feel this as well, Richard, it does feel like there's been a real powerful sort of momentum for change, positive change. And given the long uh, history of the RFF and uh, and the many administrations that you have worked with, you know, it'd be great to hear uh, your perspective because there's a lot that we can learn, frankly, from you as we set about our journey to become uh, a net zero company. But as we look at the year, people, a lot of people have said to me, if you knew what was about to happen, would you have stopped? And I guess the honest answer is we we could have pressed pause. Um, and in a time of global disruption, I guess people people would have understood, I think, if we push pause. And and I think it would have meant that we would have had an easier time of it, not that it would have been easy, but it would have been easier. But in hindsight, uh, Richard, I'm so glad uh, that we pressed on. And quite frankly, it's not just us that has pressed on, the world uh, has pressed on. And look at how much progress there's been on climate just in the last 12 months, whether whether it's despite the pandemic or because of the pandemic, but China um, has a new net zero target, 2060. The European Union um, has the Green Deal. The UK here has plans for a green industrial revolution. And in in America, um, the US has rejoined uh, Paris and and a carbon-free power sector by 2035. And in reality, I guess what I'm saying is that um, over the past 12 months, the world sort of moved towards our position uh, rather than moved away from us. And and we sit here today, and because we pressed on, uh, I'm not just sitting here saying, Richard, that we support those moves of those governments, uh, but we're fully aligned with the moves that those uh, countries have made. So we moved fast, probably faster than I thought we would. We we set a net zero ambition, uh, one of the first uh, large energy companies to do that um, by 2050 or sooner. We set a new purpose. Uh, we want to reimagine energy for, for people in our planet. We set a new strategy. Uh, we'll talk about it to become an integrated energy company. We did some real tangible things like getting into offshore wind for the first time in the United States and just recently in the UK. And I think the exciting thing is that it doesn't mean that we need to make a choice between, you know, the sense of responsibility or a choice between doing the right thing and the bottom line of the business, because of course we have to match both of those things. And I'm increasingly confident, Richard, that the two are very much aligned. We can increase the value of the company through the strategy that we've chosen. And at the same time, investors and all our other stakeholders um, can, can be supporting a carbon intensive company that is decarbonizing. And I can't imagine um, a more positive thing uh, to be supportive of. So that's a little bit of a look back on on the last twelve months, if that's helpful. Yeah, um, you know, it was interesting. We we've been doing a uh, survey of American climate sentiment for twenty years now, in collaboration with Stanford University, 
we did in the summer. And one of the major questions we had and we're wondering ourselves was whether or not attitudes had changed on, you know, the urgency of climate as an issue, you know, the extent to which governments should be taking action in response. And uh, what we found is consistent with what you've said and what I think we've all experienced, which is, uh, if anything, it increased, um, you know, people's attention and the level of importance they place on this issue uh, has not abated. And it's also been joined by, you know, many other issues related to, uh, you know, societal equality and other things that have now also, uh, you know, been touching on some of these major crisis areas. So, yeah, very consistent with uh, with your experience. You know, I think there's something about science um, in, in the pandemic that applies to climate. There's something about uh, there is no border to a pandemic. There is no border um, uh, to climate. Um, and the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's cheaper and, and, and more effective and more efficient to act early in prevention rather than act late. Um, so there are so many similarities. And, um, but we don't want to solve the climate problem by bringing the world's economy to a halt. So we have to find a different way to do it. And that's what we're all focused on, uh, on trying to do. So delving a little bit into uh, BP's net zero ambitions, uh, they've made a lot of headlines. You've committed to a tenfold increase, I think, to about $5 billion a year in low-carbon investments by 2030. Uh, and you're planning to fulfill this commitment through multiple uh, technological avenues, including renewables, bioenergy, hydrogen, uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, what ultimately led you? Uh, you said a little bit about this, but maybe give a little bit more detail. You know, you and BP to such a substantial departure from BP's past strategy. Well, look, I think um, you know it's a little bit of what I said earlier, Richard. I think there's a case of what customers want from energy is changing. Customers want energy. Society wants energy that is uh, affordable. Uh, they want it to be reliable. Uh, and they want it to be clean or cleaner. That's what society wants from energy. And what we want to do is help give society uh, what it wants. Now, that's actually quite a difficult problem to solve, clean, affordable, reliable. Uh, renewables can give you clean and affordable, but they may not give you reliable. Um, hydrocarbons can give you reliable and affordable, but they may not give you uh, clean. So how you solve this problem uh, is actually very, very difficult. And that's why it plays very well to our strengths and to the strategy that we've chosen. And the strategy that we've chosen is that we will become an integrated energy company whose purpose in life is to knit together different sources of energy to solve the problem that our customers want. And when I say customers, I mean data centers, I mean hospitals. Um, that's what they need, clean, reliable, affordable energy. And we actually do this in America today for over 100 cities, BP does. Uh, we've got deals with Amazon, with Microsoft. But at the end of the day, um, this was about heading in a direction that gives our customers what they need, but also what they want. And today, people need hydrocarbons, but they don't always want them. Uh, and we want to be uh, a company that helps solve what is going to be a quite a complex and difficult problem, as you know, to solve as the years roll on. We want to be at the heart of providing the solution to that, rather than, quite frankly, describing uh, how difficult it is. So it is about uh, doing what our employees want, 
It is about doing what society wants from us. And ultimately, we cater to our shareholders who have two things on their mind. One is they want to make a strong return on their investment. And we believe that through this process, we will do that. And equally, increasingly, they want to put their money uh, into a enterprise that is a force for good or is adding to the planet and not taking from the planet. Yeah, for those who haven't uh, followed the detailed you know, aspects of your commitment to net zero, when you say net zero, does that include just emissions from your operations or is it also from the combustion of the products you sell? It is from the combustion of the oil and gas that we produce. And this is a very important um, point that you uh, allude to. The vast majority of the emissions from um, oil and gas uh, obviously come when the uh, product is combusted. Now, it may not be combusted or it likely isn't combusted by us, but it is combusted uh, somewhere in the world. And in fact, about 90% of emissions come from that. So what we said is that as BP, we do uh, drill for hydrocarbons, we produce it. And it is what happens to that oil and gas when it is combusted, which in our case is about 415 million tonnes of uh, carbon dioxide equivalent on an annual basis. It is that that we wish to take to net zero by 2050, not just the emissions that are created as we go about our operations, so-called scope one and scope two. So we do want to uh, get into what happens when that uh, oil and gas is combusted. And at the end of the day, we're going to drive our absolute emissions down. And that's what the world needs. The world doesn't need us to improve efficiencies or intensities. It does need us to do that. But ultimately, uh, if we're going to hit one and a half degrees, absolute emissions come down. Uh, and that's what we've set out uh, to do in our strategy. You know, I can I can imagine, Bernard, that you get skepticism and questions from multiple flanks um, as you take uh, such a you know serious undertaking. Uh, what do you say to those who express skepticism of BP's plans such as criticism that it is marketing or it's greenwashing, really, rather than a significant change in focus or ultimate intention? Well, it is, um, it's a good question. I can assure you um, it is not greenwashing, and, and here's why I would say that. Um, we intend to go from 2.5 gigawatts of renewable electricity to 50 gigawatts uh, by 2030. This is a massive, massive increase, 20-fold. Uh, we intend to increase the amount of money that we spend on the transition tenfold uh, over that time period. We intend to drive down the emissions from those combusted products by between 35 and 40% over the next decade. We intend to go from 7,000 uh, charge points for electric vehicles to 70,000 charge points over the next decade. So this is not uh, uh, window dressing. This is fundamental change. We've also said that we will bring our oil and gas production down by 40% over the next decade. This is very, very distinctive. So I can assure you, uh, we do get um, people who criticize uh, us from, quite frankly, Richard, multiple directions. Um, some people who say it's greenwashing, some people who say you're not doing enough. Some people are saying that you're uh, not putting the shareholder first, um, that you're playing to the crowd, all sorts of criticism. And, you know, I think the first thing in life is to rather than blame people for being critical is to put ourselves in their shoes. Um, I think this is a very important lesson in life, at least it has been for me, because 
people aren't bad. People aren't being critical because, you know, for no reason. They're being critical because they have a history and a set of experiences with a company like ours, which if I put myself in their shoes to understand for a moment, it at least gives me perspective of where they're coming from without immediately saying they're wrong and I'm right. We are um, getting some good feedback. Our employees love what we're doing. Society, I think, in general, is very pleased with what we're doing. I think investors like the direction of travel. Um, each day, I think they understand the rationale and the, uh, the proposition more. But understandably, they want to see results. They want to see execution. And we're 100% focused on that. And I have every confidence that we will increase value of this company over time. But of course, there are critics. And, you know, the thing is, there's no point in life, really, in talking to people all the time that agree with you. So I think it is important to sit down and listen to people, listen being the important word, not try and convince them that they're wrong. Listen, because uh, my late mother, who was um, very important to me, um, she told me that, you know, God gave me two ears and one mouth, and I should use them in that proportion. And uh, I hope it was advice in general and not just for me, but I think it's great advice. And uh, if only we did a bit more listening in the world, listening to understand, not to respond, I think the world would be much better off. And that's what I try to do. And of course, there comes a point where you do have to say, well, I have a different point of view, but sometimes you learn. And I think that's the most powerful thing. Yeah, yeah, very good advice. Um, Bernard, I want to touch back a little bit on um, the severe disruption to the global economy that was caused by COVID-19, as I think you alluded to earlier, very substantially reduced energy consumption. Uh, global demand in 2020 fell 6% overall, and you know, at the peak uh, was much, you know, much greater than that. Uh, this all comes at a time when markets had already been flushed with oil. Uh, I think you've said, uh, but if you have anything further you want to add that um, you know, one could have imagined this could have disrupted your plans. Um, sounds like you've proceeded apace. And um, as, if I heard you right, uh, even though at the times there may have been questions, uh, in retrospect, um, it was it was uh, the right thing to do. But if you have anything to add in terms of whether you've had adjustments in your strategy uh, to uh, due to COVID, and also one year into the pandemic, how much of this do you think is transitory, and how much uh, do you think it's permanent in terms of what the energy impacts will be? I think time will tell on what the long-term implications of the pandemic will be. Um, uh, if I take our own company um, and let's talk about uh, work uh, for a moment, um, we will go to a hybrid strategy where instead of people coming to an office environment to work, uh, people will work from home around two days a week and spend about three days a week uh, in the office. So that is a change that will be a real change in inside of our company. Um, it gives people more flexibility. Uh, I hope it reduces commuting and time lost on commuting and gives people more time uh, in their home environment. So there will be changes like that. Um, I've no doubt that business travel uh, will change. Um, but I think we shouldn't be naive, particularly when we see some of the numbers and what's happening in China in Asia, in India, where, you know, numbers are back at already exceeding levels that we saw before the pandemic. So there is an insatiable desire for energy in the world, particularly in emerging economies. They have every right to expect that and want that. 
And our job, obviously, is to help those countries meet their energy needs, things that we take for granted that they sort of dream of. Our job is to help them get that and do it in a way uh, which doesn't damage the environment. That's what we're trying to do. Does the pandemic change our strategy? It didn't. Um, if anything, it caused us to double down on what we're doing. Uh, we stuck with it. We're a year further down the road. Um, we're now in the wind business in the offshore uh, in the United States, which I'm uh, delighted with. Uh, offshore New York, we're just entered uh, in the Irish Sea uh, here in the United Kingdom. Uh, we're building partnerships uh, with Qantas. We're uh, the electric vehicle charger to Didi in China. Didi is the world's largest mobility provider. They have 600 million users on their platform. They have 30 million rides a day. They own, I think, a million electric vehicles, the biggest owner of EVs in the world. And they've chosen BP to be their partner to build out their charging network in China. So these are all just small examples or, or biggish examples, I guess, of the things that we've managed to get done. And look, I've always said, Richard, you know, um, when you come to a problem in life and whether it's in your personal life or in work or wherever, there's there's usually a, an easier route and there's usually a, a tougher route. And my, my experience is that the tough route uh, is usually the right route. Um, and while it was harder in many ways to stick with what we planned and laid out last year, um, I have deep inner confidence um, that in the long run uh, we'll be delighted uh, that we did it. The tough things in life are usually the right things to do. And, and, and that's just a, a piece of reality that, that for me, I've, I've certainly experienced. Yeah, the tough road is tough and it also requires a lot of continuous care and attention and, and planning along the way. Each episode of RFS Policy Leadership Series podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This series provides thoughtful conversations with leading experts to better connect and inform our community on the latest environmental and economics issues. And you can help us by supporting RFF. You join us in our mission to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economics research and policy engagement. Learn more about contributing to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. I want to turn a little bit to policy uh, and discuss carbon pricing and other policies just for a minute. Many oil and gas companies are not taking the same uh, types of actions on climate that BP is. Uh, some are, but uh, many are not. And some have continued to work against policies to reduce uh, emissions of methane and CO2. Uh, so what led BP to come out so forcefully for a price on carbon? It may even seem to run counter to your own uh, historical growth strategy. And to what extent do you think BP's actions might lead the way for other companies to take uh, similar changes and commitments? Well, I think there's a lot of great companies out there, and it's not for me, Richard, to tell anyone what to do. So I'll leave them to their own choices, so to speak. But for us, you know, we have long been a supporter of a price on carbon, actually, over the last 20 years uh, ever since John Brown did his speech on um, climate change at uh, Stanford University in the late 90s, where he acknowledged that climate change and human activity were interlinked and uh, at the time derided by many in our industry for uh, saying such a thing. But he was right. I think that was in 1997 or 1998. Um, and ever since then, we've been a strong proponent of a price in carbon. We actually had our own internal uh, carbon trading scheme for a while. 
Um, look, I think I'm not an economist. I'm an engineer, um, not, not smart enough to be an economist, but, but I do get the basic principle, which is if something isn't priced, if this concept of an externality, um, how can we expect um, people to make the right choices because the cost isn't there to be seen and therefore the cost isn't in the decision-making. So we've long been a supporter of a price in carbon. In many ways, it gets easier as we transition the company because um, as we put a price on carbon, as many countries and, and, and states now are doing and cities actually around the world, not waiting for some global solution, as that happens, uh, while, yes, it increases the cost of our core product, it incentivizes people uh, around the products that we are developing. So an example would be here in the United Kingdom, where we are supportive uh, and have been vocal in our support of an acceleration of the ban on internal combustion engines. Um, now, why would we do that, you might say? Isn't that what our company does? Well, yes, on the one hand, we sell a lot of fuel and gasoline, as you would call it, here in the UK, so it will impact that business. But at the same time, we own Pulse. And Pulse is the largest charging EV charging network in the UK. And just as it hurts our fuel business, it will help our charging business. And therefore, it's not just a threat, it's actually an opportunity. And that's what the transition does, is it means that things like a price in carbon, which are absolutely right, uh, actually helps our company now uh, that we are part of this transition. But pricing on carbon is, is very clear. Uh, it can be effective. Um, emissions can go down while the, you know, the economy grows. It can be efficient, um, giving companies, obviously, you know, that incentive to invest in the transition. And it can be fair, um, something that the pandemic has, has really brought to light. Those who, uh, fairness in society, those who emit the most, pay the most, and governments can choose how to use the revenues. And it's not a silver bullet, but it is a big part of the toolkit. And we've been involved, Richard, in several policy advocacy campaigns in the US. Um, I think it's Reggie or GGI uh, on the East Coast, which is around a, a cap and trade program for power. I think TCI, Transport and Climate Initiative, I think it's called, is uh, an evolution of that that's now focused on transport. We're a big supporter of that. And in Washington State, on the other side, we're actively advocating for an economy-wide cap and invest bill. So lots going on, lots more to do. And, and you know, it's really important for us. Um, and it's one of the first things I did in, when I took the job was get on the phone with our people inside the company and say, you know, we must advocate for policies that enable the transition, that enable net zero. And all I would say is that it's a big company and it takes time for that message longer than you would like sometimes to, to get out there. So if people see us doing things that are inconsistent with what I've just said, um, it's probably not deliberate. It's probably something that uh, for whatever reason has slipped through the cracks. Let us know immediately, uh, bring it to our attention uh, so that we can address it because uh, there's usually more to it than meets the eye. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, and it's been, uh, I sometimes think it's not always appreciated that, um, you know, uh, corporate commitments like yours, as important as they are, can only ultimately work within an overall ecosystem, an overall societal plan that's also driving the demand for energy in the same direction that you're seeking to drive the supply for energy. And so this interplay between, you know, society-wide policies and strategies and, and corporate commitments like yourselves is uh, incredibly important to have that aligned. Absolutely. We obviously do not act in a vacuum. We do not 
do what we do um, in the absence of either policy or societal uh, wants and preferences. So this must come together as a system. And I think you're seeing that uh, in the US today, and we're certainly seeing it uh, in Europe over the past several years. So much to be optimistic about, I think. So we've touched a little bit on technologies that BP is investing in, and there's obviously incredible growth in new advanced energy technologies. You know, at RFF, we've had for a few years now an advanced energy technologies project. What that's doing is quantifying the potential societal benefit of technologies like carbon capture from gas plants, advanced nuclear reactors, geothermal power, and direct air capture and energy storage. And I know at BP, you're also thinking about a, a wide set of energy technologies so given all these emerging technologies, you know, how are you making decisions about which technologies to invest in and, and how fast? Well, I think um, in the matter of um, electricity, I mean, a lot of the technology really does exist. And it's a question about continuing to drive scale and driving the cost curve. I mean, the world is electrifying. Renewables are going to be a, a clear winner. And for us, we're in um, we're one of the largest solar developers uh, in Europe. I think the largest in Europe, one of the largest in the world is called Lightsource BP. It's a 50-50 joint venture. We're in that. Uh, offshore wind is a huge area. I think it's the fastest growing source of renewable electricity uh, in the world. We want to bring a lot of the skills that we've honed over 112 years uh, in oil and gas that are actually directly applicable uh, to this. These are multi-billion dollar, multi-year uh, projects. Um, and we, you know, we brought on, I think, 29 major projects across the world over the last uh, five or six years. So project management skills, we can apply there. We have a large trading house, a very large trading organization that can sort of bring this together for customers and it can hedge pricing for them so that they can have predictable pricing and risk management for their businesses. So renewable electricity, I think, is an area that we will play, but it's not just there. The world's going to need more than that to solve some of the problems that lie ahead of us. And heat, industrial processes, these are very, very difficult, heavy-duty transport, aviation. Uh, and that's where you see us and will see us investing more and more uh, in hydrogen. I think it's a technology probably for the, the next decade, but it is one that will grow materially, and we intend to be a significant player in it. Um, we're saying about 10% market share in the markets that develop. Um, so we like um, uh, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage. I don't think, and Richard, you'll know this better than I do, I think, but I don't think there's a, a scenario in the world that doesn't involve some form of taking carbon out of the atmosphere and, uh, and, and sort of taking it back, so to speak. So the concept of carbon capture and storage, I know a lot of people are skeptical about that. I know a lot of people think, that it's um, big oil's um, sort of license to continue to do uh, what it does. I, I can assure you that's not how uh, I relate to it. I think it is a technology that will be needed at scale. When I speak with people like uh, Mark Carney, he's absolutely convinced of this. We have relevant skills, project management, understanding of reservoirs. Uh, we took it out. We can help put it back, so to speak. Um, so hydrogen, CCS, bio, uh, biofuels, biojet, um, how that evolves in the aviation sector uh, is going to be crucial 
uh, particularly for long distance aviation where uh, batteries, it seems, are, are, are may never work, but are certainly decades away. So bio is going to be a, a big part of that solution. And we're, we're big in the bio business in, uh, in Brazil, for example, having the second largest biofuels uh, company in that country. So there's a lot going on. Probably the one that we haven't talked about is digital. And I'm just a massive believer in the power of digital technology. The thing that I love about digital, Richard, is that it touches every aspect of our business. It touches every technology, whereas certain technologies, they touch a certain part of the business, something about customers, something about costs, something about carbon, something about revenue. Digital can touch everything. And uh, it's a a business that uh, is a part of our uh, company that we wish to really, really uh, do a lot more on. We've been doing a lot over the past several years. Uh, We're hiring some great people from from the US, from uh, Toyota Research Institute, from uh, uh, Tesla, uh, bringing them to London, helping grow a real set of capabilities. And uh, very, very exciting, actually, what we're doing in that space. So digital is actually one that I'm also incredibly uh, optimistic about. How about the, uh, how much activity do you have on the net part of net zero uh, or carbon removal technologies, either things like, you know, direct air capture of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or, uh, you know, natural climate solutions potentially. Is that something that you're directly engaged in or is that something you're looking to others to kind of supply to you? We actually do do a lot of work in natural climate solutions. I know that it's an area that is, you know, as a as a non-expert in this space, um, I've realized that it's an area that there is a lot of different opinions on. Uh, even within the NGO community, I see uh, some NGOs who um, are very uh, anti, let's call it, natural climate solutions or offsets, and and some that are very pro. The things that matter uh, to me are um, the quality of uh, those natural climate solutions and. By quality, I mean, you know, is it is it really uh, something that you know? If you're protecting a forest, is it really? Can you really be sure that that forest was about to be cut down? So the quality of it there. And the other piece that's probably important to me, given my my uh, farm upbringing in in the west of Ireland, is 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 the fairness on uh, how that farmer gets rewarded um, for the action that he or she is taking. And how do we make sure that when you've got these big companies and these small individuals, that that relationship is fair? That's incredibly important to me. And you see some of these carbon offsets today selling at very, very low prices, which just doesn't feel right. So quality in this whole space is really important. We uh, were an investor and I think have just bought this company called Finite Carbon that started in, uh, in California and its mission. And we want to grow this company. Um, and help them grow. Its mission is that um, a farmer can plant one tree, one tree, and and get rewarded for it. Um, that's their mission anywhere in the world that, that a farmer can do that. One tree, get paid a fair price for planting a tree. And that sounds like a very good thing to do. It's a space that's brought with questions, I think. So we need to make sure that it's done well. There's a lot of work being done on making sure that the marketplace for these uh, natural climate solutions, these offsets is fair, it's transferable across boundaries. Uh, we're involved in, uh, in helping to shape some of that. But what I will tell you is that the emission reduction targets, the absolute emission reduction targets, Richard, that we have set between now and 2030, do not rely 
on natural climate solutions are offsets. And I think this is very important because a lot of people, again, uh, think, oh, uh, they're planting forests to keep doing the business that they're doing. And what I can assure you is that our targets over the next decade uh, do not rely on them. We will use them if we think it's uh, a good thing to do in a given location or for compliance purposes in a given state, but we do not rely on them to achieve our objectives. And I think this is very important uh, for your audience to understand. Yeah, that's great. Bernard, it's been a great conversation. My really sincere thanks to you for a candid and insightful conversation. Bernard, with that, uh, I don't know if you have anything uh, you want to say in closing word, Bernard, but really just thanks so much. No, thank you, Richard. And um, thank you for all the great work you do and your organization and your leadership. And thanks to everybody for listening in. And um, I hope it was a little bit helpful. So thank you. That was Richard Newell, President and CEO of Resources for the Future, in conversation with CEO of BP, Bernard Looney. If you like what you heard, remember to like or favorite RFF's Policy Leadership Series podcast on your podcast platform of choice. We will release new episodes every month with leading environmental and energy policy decision makers. You also can find recordings from our Policy Leadership Series events at rff.org pls and receive updates about RFF's events and podcasts at rff.org subscribe. The live event was produced by Hilary Alvare, Libby Casey, Justine Sullivan, and Sarah Tung. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. RFF podcasts are managed by me, Elizabeth Wasson, and made possible by you, our listeners. You can contribute to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Thank you for joining us.